You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into the Scriptures, all right? Uh, Father, we're grateful um, for the church that You have given us here in just the work that You have done over the past nine years. Um, as I look across the room and I, I see different people and their stories, I'm just reminded of the grace that you have shown us as your people. And God, I, I pray this morning, as we're unpacking your scriptures, that you would come and speak to us in a near, intimate, dear way. I pray that we wouldn't leave this place without experiencing peace of your goodness, and that we would have a greater sense of what Jesus has done for us and the rest that he provides us in his life and ministry. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've been, ever been in an English class, you've heard an English teacher stand before you and tell you about how important stories are, right? Like stories have this innate ability to do a couple of things in us. One, they provoke our emotion, right? Like you watch a movie, you watch a show, anybody that's into a certain story, like at some point there's been tears that have come to your eyes because of a way that a story hit you or a big smile that came across your face, But secondly, they can also change you behaviorally, right? Like, stories can be used to drive a point home in such a way that it resonates with your very inner being that changes the way that you live. So, um, some of our finest leaders, some of the best communicators are known as fabulous storytellers. So, friends and acquaintances of Abraham Lincoln would recall how the president often would stop in mid-sentence of a conversation or something that hit his mind and say, that reminds me of a story, and then launch into like a humorous or revealing antidote. So if you've seen the movie Lincoln, there's a scene there where it's towards the end of the movie. He comes into the White House. He has his staff or the Congress. I, I don't remember which one it was. They all come around him. He's sitting on someone's desk. And he literally says that. that. That reminds me of a story. And you can see people's eyes roll at the very beginning of this. But by the end of the scene, Lincoln has all eyes on him. And the room is quiet. And you can tell that he's captured everybody's attention. And he has this antidote that he lands on at the very end of the story that's, like, really inspiring. So, like, here's what I want us to see this morning, all right? This morning we're looking at a couple of stories that Matthew recounts of Jesus. And these two stories, they're not sequential in Jesus' life. These are two stories that Matthew has picked out of the life and ministry of Jesus in order to drive home a point that Jesus makes at the end of Matthew chapter 11. Here's what Jesus says at the end of that chapter. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So Jesus, without using the very word, is proclaiming himself to be the ultimate Sabbath, the ultimate rest. Now that Sabbath word may seem a little ancient for us, So here's what it means. Sabbath means that there's a deep rest or a deep peace. And it was so prized by God that He made it one of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. It's the fourth commandment. 
Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And one author puts it well that Sabbath is both a day and an attitude. So here's what I believe God is saying. I, hear what, I believe this is what Jesus is saying through the end of chapter 11. That God has created us for soul rest. Our world is not to be in this inner chaos, whether it's externally or internally. And what Jesus is saying of himself is that as we are looking for this rest, and we all are, we're all searching for it, that the only place that you're going to find it is in the life and work of Jesus himself. And so, those are lofty, life-altering promises. And Jesus needs a couple of things for him to not be a crazy street preacher, okay? One, he needs authority. He needs a rightful position to be able to stand up before people and say that, come to me and you will find rest. And then secondly, he needs a power to actually deliver on those promises. And so here's what I think Matthew's trying to do through the stories we're going to read this morning. I believe Matthew is trying to drive home the point that Jesus is the ultimate rest and he's provoking this through stories in Jesus' life. And so here's what I want us to do. We're going to look at two stories. The first story, I believe Matthew is pointing to the authority that Jesus has to stand up and proclaim that he is the ultimate rest. Where he can stand up with sufficiency and say, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The second story, I believe he's driving home that Jesus possesses the power to follow through with these very promises. With promises like, take up my yoke and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. So we're going to wrestle through these two stories, have a couple of points of application, and then we'll close, okay? So I'm going to read the passage for us, then we'll break down the passage a little bit. So here's the first story. I'll read it for us in full. It's Matthew 12, 1 through 8, and it says this. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law... Not on Sabbath days, the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So here's what's happening, all right? Jesus and his disciples, it's a Sabbath day, they're walking through a grain field, there's no problem here whatsoever. But as they're walking through, his disciples began to pick off grains of wheat. And as they're doing this, the Pharisees translate it that they are breaking the Sabbath law. Because here's what the Sabbath law is from Exodus 20. It says this, You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, 
or the resident alien who is within your city gates. So the Pharisees, being good Pharisees, make sure that people, God's people, take this seriously. And what they do is they actually come up with 39 other laws that they consider Sabbath laws in order to ensure that God's people take the Sabbath day seriously. I mean, they're literally the helicopter parents of the Sabbath day, right? Like 39 additional laws is insane. So here's how the disciples have broken this law. By picking that grain and eating it, they've done two things. One, they've reaped. They've literally picked off the head of grain from the plants. So that's, that's one violation. The second one is threshing. Because whenever you pick off the grain, you have to rub it into your hands to get it out of the husk in order for you to consume it. And so the disciples have broken the Sabbath laws in two ways, by reaping and by threshing. And that's why at the very end of the first two verses, the Pharisees say, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus replies to them, and he does it through three Bible references, all right? And so here, here's what I want you to see as we're, we begin to walk through these three different Bible references. Jesus has chosen three Bible references, and Bible scholars break down the Old Testament into three different parts. The first is that there is, there's historical writings, things that have happened through the order and the life of Israel. And then secondly, you have the law of God, where in books like Deuteronomy and Numbers, he's breaking down the very laws of God that he gives to his people as he's rescued them out of Egypt. And then thirdly, you have the prophets. And the prophets are proclamations from God through designated people to his people. So here's what Jesus does. He chooses a, a passage from each of these three different Old Testament writings. And he un- unravels it for the Pharisees. So here's the first one. He, he starts with David, the historical writings. Haven't you read what David did? And so here, here's the story that Jesus is referring to. It's in 1 Samuel 21. David, David is fleeing King Saul because King Saul is pursuing Saul, David for his life. It's a, it's a story right after where Jonathan and David, their best friends, they're out in the field, and Jonathan shoots arrows in order to warn David to flee because the king is coming after him. So David flees. He goes to a town called Nob. It's about eight miles away from where King Saul is. He enters the temple, and he requests food from the priest. And the only food the priest had is the consecrated bread or the bread of the presence. So I have a picture of what that was. So you enter into the temple, the tabernacle at that time. It's in the holy place. Only the priests can go. And there's 12 different loaves of bread that are symbolizing the 12 colonies, the 12 tribes of Israel. And the only people that can eat this bread, this bread is set out on the Sabbath day, and the only people that can eat this bread are the priests. But what we see here is that the priests take into account David's situation. They see what David is doing. And the priest makes a decision for the good of David and his life circumstance that he gives the bread to David for David to eat and consume. And so here's what I think Jesus is doing through this first story. I think Jesus is pointing out to the Pharisees that they have their priorities out of whack. Elsewhere, whenever Jesus is talking about the Sabbath, he says that the Sabbath has been created for man and man not created for Sabbath. And so the way that the Pharisees 
are functioning and the way that they're instructing God's people to function is that they are instructing God's people to act as if they serve the Sabbath rather than the Sabbath serving them. The whole purpose that God gives a rule or a law over the Sabbath is in order to make sure that God's people are actually practicing the rest that He's called them to, not for them to serve the Sabbath day. But that's not how the Pharisees are treating this whatsoever. They're creating up rules. They're really strict about it. And they're so willing to be strapped to the laws that they completely disregard the good of humanity. And so Jesus, through this law, this this story of the historical writings with David, is pointing out and saying, you have your priorities wrong. Then secondly, he moves to a reference from the law of God. It says this, Or you haven't read in the law that on Sabbath days the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent. So here's what Jesus is referring to, all right? The priests... Part of their job is for them to offer sacrifices on behalf of God's people. And some of those sacrifices are designated for the Sabbath day. So for the priests to follow through with that, they have to violate the Sabbath in order to serve God's people. But what Jesus is saying that the Pharisees understand too is that the place of the priest's work, the temple, trumps or supersedes the act of the priest's work, which is offering sacrifices. So the priests, even though they violate the Sabbath day as God has required it, are stand innocent before God because of the very work that they're doing and the place in which they do it. And so Jesus, through this reference, is pointing out how the Pharisees have a double standard. They would never bring the priests before God and judge them as if they are violating the Sabbath. Yet, when it comes to the good of some person, they're willing to go and cast judgment on the innocent. They have a double standard. And Jesus points it out through his reference to the law. And then third, Jesus makes a reference to the prophets. He said, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is quoting from the prophet Hosea here. And what's happening in the book of Hosea at that point in time in Israel's life and history is God's people have rebelled and been unwilling to return to the Lord. So Hosea is coming and he's imploring. He's literally begging God's people to repent and come back to God. And he quotes in Hosea 6.6 the very heart of God. He says this, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God. And anytime you see the knowledge of God, that's making a reference to like this deep experience or relationship with God Himself. I, des- I, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God, deep experience or relationship with God, rather than burnt offerings. So the Pharisees had lost sight not only of humanity and its good, but the very delight and relationship that they have, the love of God. They love so much the rules and the ability to perform before God's people by keeping the rules that they've lost sight that the whole purpose and intent is to enjoy and delight in God Himself by being so strapped to these laws. They've literally sucked out the essence, the delight of the Sabbath because they are so enamored by the laws that they've created around the Sabbath. 
One author puts it like this, talking about Jesus and how Matthew is portraying this through this story. Matthew gives us a Jesus through these three references whose kindness everywhere envelops demand. His kindness envelops the demand. And it envelops the rules. So Jesus, through these three instances, is literally correcting the Pharisees and what they're doing. And he ends this whole story with this, what seems very out of place title that he gives himself. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He ends focusing on a posture or a position of authority. So how is Jesus getting there? Like, what, what is he doing? How is he coming to this conclusion that he has the authority to where he declares himself Lord of the Sabbath? Well, I think these three references that Jesus has used is he's pointing to something. So the Pharisees are the people that are experts in God's law at this point in time. They're the Bible experts, and Jesus schools them here. And what he's doing is he's not only showing them that you don't even know the Bible as well as you do, or he's not even trying to necessarily show that the people of God have more freedom in the Scriptures than what their instructors have been telling them. He's pointing, them, pointing out to them that he's the fulfillment of all the Bible that has been pointing to. There's a reason that he makes an instance to all three aspects of the Bible up to this point, and it's because he's showing them, I am the fulfillment of everything that the Bible has been pointing to. So you take the historical writings. Jesus is the king of Israel. He's the descendant of David, the one that's been promised long ago. And he's the one that is coming into humanity in order to stand in our place and crush the head of Satan. He is the definitive king. Jesus is the temple, the very presence of God. The temple was this place amongst God's people where God's presence could dwell. Jesus, God himself, put on human flesh and came and walked amongst humanity. He is the temple. Then you have the prophets, and Jesus is the great prophet. Prophets were people that spoke God's words to God's people. Jesus is God himself proclaiming the goodness of his kingdom that has finally come. And not only is he the one that promises mercy, he's the one that enacts it because he's the one that goes and pays the final sacrifice on the cross for those people who place their faith in him. So what Jesus is doing here. And what Matthew is doing through this story is he's showing that Jesus, at the end of Matthew chapter 11, these promises that he's given to his people that if they come to him, they will find rest. Matthew is saying he has the authority to carry that through. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. One Christian author puts it like this. The short meaning of this first story in the Sabbath controversy is that Jesus is Lord, not just over the Sabbath, over everything, no matter how sacred. So the first thing that Jesus needs in order to carry out the promises he gives at the end of Matthew chapter 11, he has the authority. He has the authority. 
And the second story points to the ability or the power to carry through with his promises. So here's the second story, Matthew 12, 9 through 14. It says this. Moving on from there, he entered their synagogue. And there he saw a man who had a shriveled hand. And in order to accuse him, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He replied to them, Who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep. So it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Then he told the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and, as he, and it was restored as good as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. So here, here's what's happening. After, sometime after the Grainfield story, Jesus encounters this man with a shriveled hand and the Pharisees in the synagogue. And here's a couple of things that we can know immediately from the first verse of this story. Okay, there's two things. First, we know that the Pharisees know enough about Jesus, they've experienced enough about his life and ministry to know that when they bring the man with the shriveled hand, that Jesus is going to heal them, even though it's on a Sabbath day. They've experienced the nature, they've experienced the goodness of Jesus, they know his heart and his desire for humanity and their goodness to where they know if they bring this man with the shriveled hand, that Jesus is going to heal him. And then secondly... We know that they have zero concern about whether Jesus actually considered what his answer is to the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? We know this because the verse tells us that they bring the man with the shriveled hand because they want to accuse him. And Jesus is no fool. He knows what's happening here. He, he's experienced the Pharisees. He's experienced this testing before. And so he steps into it. And what we see that in the first story, Jesus argues or he defends with the Bible. Here, Matthew comes with a different story and a different way to relate because Jesus argues off the basis of human experience and common sense. He starts with a situation that no one would object to. All right, Who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? The answer is that anyone would do this, but especially the Pharisees. Alright, so here's why especially the Pharisees. Elsewhere the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Luke, that the Pharisees have this deep love for money. At this time, sheep had monetary value. And so if these Pharisees themselves, if they had a sheep that fell into a pit, they had such a deep love for money that they would absolutely go after that sheep that fell into the pit. And any of us would do the same, right? I mean, a sheep also have a creational value. Like, if we see something that's in distress, we're not going to leave it to the weather. We're not going to leave it to victim to wolves or whatever that might come for its life. We're going to step in and we're going to take care of it. And then here, this is where Jesus traps the Pharisees in their own question. Because Jesus says, a person is worth far more. It's worth far more than a sheep. And so he concludes, it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Man is God's image bearer. 
Like the Bible tells us that whenever God created us, we were the pinnacle of His creation. Whenever the rest of creation, all of that Jesus, God spoke into existence, when it looks at us, humanity, it sees the very image of God. So how much more is worth and worthy is the life of a human person and it's good than rescuing a sheep from its pit? Jesus traps the Pharisees in their own question. And then Jesus turns to the man and he instructs him, stretch out your hand. And of course we know that Matthew tells us that the man stretched out his arm. Jesus restores it and it tells us that his arm that was once shriveled up and un- unuseful is now as good as his other. And it, here's what I think is happening. There's more that's going on than just the demonstration of Jesus' power that he can feel, he can heal physically. Because the arm is symbolic throughout the, the Bible, all right? So anytime that the arm is discussed, whenever it's talked about God himself, it's, it's discussed as a symbol of strength. When God stretches out his arm, there's a symbol of strength that comes from him as the residing king. But there's also instances throughout the Bible that whenever there is something wrong with your arm or your hand, that it's a sign of divine judgment. There's a king named Jeroboam in the Old Testament in the Kings, that whenever he stretches out his arm and he does something against God's will, that God strikes divine judgment against him and his arm shrivels up. And he goes to a priest and he asks that he would pray on his behalf that his arm would be healed and God heals his arm. So Jesus is doing more than just showing this physical ability to heal. He's also showing his power to do something with a person's soul that no one but God himself can do. By this man stretching out his arm in the, place, in the eyes of the Pharisees on the Sabbath day, Jesus is not only declaring that he has the power to heal physically, he has the power to heal spiritually and to deal with your sins and your broken relationship with God. This is why at the end of the story, the Pharisees storm off and begin plotting Jesus' death. And what Matthew is doing here, after Jesus' promise that he, he can restore your soul, he can give you soul rest. He's, Matthew's proved his authority in order to stand before people and make that command. But through this story, he's showing that he has the ability and the power to actually make it happen and see it through. So if this is true, if Jesus really can't stand with authority and power to say, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Then we have to respond. So here's our two applications, and then we'll close. The first one is this. Receive the ultimate rest of Jesus. One author says this, you will never enter the Sabbath rest without a Sabbath heart. Jesus is the ultimate Sabbath. 
The command that God gives in the Old Testament has always been pointing to Jesus as the ultimate rest that we all need. And the only reason that we can find that rest in Jesus is because he has endured the strain, he's endured the toil of the cross on our behalf. Luke says this, being in anguish as Jesus is in the garden praying. He says, being in anguish, he prayed fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. He endured the strain, the stress of the sacrifice, the judgment that you and I deserved. And then he went to that cross, he climbed up it and he stood and he didn't come down. He endured the pain and the turmoil that the cross meant for you and me, and he took it all upon himself. And at the very end, he said, it is finished. And through the goodness of our Savior, we get to experience the ultimate rest, the resurrection rest that he had because three, day late, three days later, the grave could not contain him. And he resides where there is ultimate rest now. And it's the hope, it's the promise that he gives to all who believe and follow after him. So the call for you this morning is receive the ultimate rest of Jesus. He's the only one that can give it to you. You're looking for it. You're trying to find it in all these different places. And the only guarantee of where you can find it is in the goodness of Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. So receive His rest. And then the second one is that we would practice the Sabbath. Alright? So, listen, I'm not coming to you and I don't have a lot of good personal examples of practicing the Sabbath because I honestly have not done well in doing this myself. All right, so this past week, I'm taking my son, my oldest, Seth, to school. We're at a stoplight. Like, we've been listening to music. We literally hadn't been talking about anything that, like, ministry or work-related at all. And we're stopped at this stoplight in between songs, and Seth says, Daddy, when are you going to take your next day off? It's like, well, all right, this passage is hitting at a right time for my life. Amen. And here's what I know about the rest of us, too. That we aren't good at taking Sabbaths either. And I have actual factual data (laughs) that proves this. So last year, last summer, we took a church health survey. And one of the questions that we asked was, how are you practicing the Sabbath? Do you practice the Sabbath? We had 144 of you that took that survey. Only five said that they practiced the Sabbath. We wear busyness as a badge of honor on our sleeve. We take pride in telling people how busy we are, how much we have going on with work, and how many hours throughout the week that we work. But that's not the life that God has for you and me. Yeah, like, okay, the, God commands in the Ten Commandments that this is a practice that we are to do. Yeah. But the placement that he puts that in the order of the commandments, I think, has significant weight for us. Okay? And the reason that God wants us to rest is, yes, he wants us to flourish in this life, but he also wants us to flourish in our relationships. One pastor says this, 
In the Ten Commandments, the fourth, Sabbath, is in the bridge that takes us from the first three, which focus on God, to the final five, which concentrate on our relationships with others. So what he's pointing out, the first three commandments in the Ten Commandments have all to do about our orientation towards God and our worship towards Him. Then he gives the Sabbath, the command, for us to function and practice the Sabbath every single week. And then the rest of the commandments have to do with our orientation towards other people. And so here's what I think is happening. I think God is pointing out that our rest, the time that we take away from our work, has significance towards our relationship with God and other people. So if you are here this morning, you came in and you're feeling dry when it comes to your relationship with God. Or you're feeling very surface level with other people that God has brought into your life. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's the rest of your family, maybe it's your friends. You're feeling, feeling very shallow in your relationships. It might be because you are so poorly practicing rest in your life. So here, here's what I want us to feel. Here's what I want us to experience. I want us to get to a place where we begin to practice rest practice Sabbath in such a way where we grow when we fill the depths of our relationship with both God and our friends. I think that's the vision that God has for the Sabbath, and that's the vision I want for us as a church. So I, I did a lot of reading because I don't practice this well myself, and here's what it kind of boils down to, how we practice the Sabbath, all right? The first is that we work hard. We work hard. The Sabbath is not an excuse for you to become lazy. Rather, it's a motivation for you to work hard and diligently in the six days of work in order that you can take a complete 24 hours off in order to enjoy God and enjoy the relationships that He's put you around and to delight in the life that He's given you. And the only way that you can do that is if you work hard. All of us have mental breaks that we take during the day. All of us, the, the point here is that we don't allow that to go from a brief instance to where it takes up half of our day and we end up working the full seven days. You, you, you with me? Like you experience that? Like I, I, I get caught in YouTube spirals. I'm trying to write a sermon for crying out loud. We all experience this, right? Like we experience that we spiral out. We take big momentary pauses from our work. What God is saying is, no, you be focused in your work in order that you can take a complete 24 hours off to enjoy and delight and experience the, good, the goodness of God and those that He's placed in your life. You work hard. And then secondly, you play even more hard on the day that you set aside for rest. So, we're getting this whole idea of Sabbath from God Himself, right? So, at the creation account... God on the seventh day rested from all of his work. And he didn't rest because he was tired, right? Like our God's not a God that gets tired. He, he's so powerful. He's so overseen. He didn't take a, a Sabbath day because he was tired. No, he took it in order to enjoy his creation. God played hard on that seventh day. And so here's, here's what all the books that I read this week pointed to. You should literally... Worked so hard during your six days, but you organize your whole week around this Sabbath day and you put such intentionality and planning into it that it's the day that you look forward to most 
with anticipation because of the delight and the joy that you get to experience. So it's, man, you're putting on a feast at your house and you're inviting your, your favorite people over. Like, you're thinking through the things that bring most joy and delightment in your life and you're planning it for that day and you go and do it. And as you're doing all of this, you're thinking on, you're experiencing the goodness of your God, and you grow in your depth and your joy of Him because of all the goodness that He's good at, given us in this life. Like, that's the idea of the Sabbath. Like, you do the things that you like to do with the people that you like to do them with, and as you do it, you enjoy the goodness of your God in the life that He's given you. Like, who doesn't want that, right? Like, I want to have enjoyment and delight in this life, and God's given you the excuse to go do it by having an exclusive day that you set aside to do it. And what I believe the Bible points to, and I, what all the most smartest people that think on the Sabbath have said, is that through this, there's enjoyment, there's delight, but there's also a bringing about of wholeness in your life as you experience and practice the Sabbath. So let's be a people that receive the rest of God and we practice the Sabbath. We'll close with this. An old British minister, Dick Lucas, in a sermon that he gave, rehearsed an imaginary conversation that he had with an early Christian and a Roman neighbor in Rome that they had. So the conversation went like this. Ah, the neighbor says, I hear you are religious. That's great. Religion is a good thing where is your temple or your holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple, says with bewilderment. But where do your priests work and do their rituals? The Christian replies back, we don't have priests to mediate the presence of God. Jesus is our priest. No priests? But where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? The Christian replies, we don't need a sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. And just completely set it back now, not understanding anything of what this person is trying to say. The Roman neighbor says this, what, what kind of religion is this? And storms away. And the preacher leaves it blank because he's wanting you to fill in the answer. Now, here's the answer. The answer is that this is really no religion at all. Rather, it's a faith with a crucified and risen Savior who has the authority and has the power to deliver on His promises. So, Christian, for those that aren't Christians yet, receive the rest of Jesus. And then practice the Sabbath and enjoy the delight that comes with knowing God and being in relationships with one another. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of the Sabbath. And Lord, I confess, may we confess, that we are not a people that rest well. God, give us the strength, give us the willingness, give us the conviction to repent of this in our life. And that we may be a people that work really hard and diligently and then practice the rest of Jesus. May we be a people that begin to scheme how we enjoy this life and that we set aside 
time for us to enjoy you, the things that you've created and the relationships that you've given us, and that it may point to the ultimate delight and joy that we have in you, God. We need you. I need you in order for this to be a new life change in my own life. And may you come and do it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the loaf and he shared it with his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup, was symbolic of his blood. He passed it around to his disciples and he said, this is the cup of my blood. The blood that will be shed for you on the cross. Every time that you drink of this, remember the sacrifice that has been placed for you by me on the cross. And that night, he went and achieved ultimate rest for you and me. And so this morning, we're going to practice, just like we do every single week, we're going to practice taking communion. For those of you that have not received the rest of Jesus yet, this meal isn't for you yet. Rather, we have people in the back that can talk with you about receiving that very rest of Jesus. And then next week, you can come take this meal. But for Christians, as you come forward, think, that Je- think about all that Jesus did. He's the fulfillment of all the scriptures. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the ultimate rest. And as you come, take off the bread and you dip it in the juice or wine, whichever your conscience permits. The wine is always marked by twine. Then you can remember and experience the rest that Jesus gives to us. You may come and take this whenever you're ready. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.